Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. As always, Nina and I were torn over what to call today's episode. When we started putting it together, Nina named it Johnny Matarano's Hit Parade. Yes, most, but not all of the murders we're discussing today were Matarano's handiwork, but he was also very busy outside of the time frame that we're covering today, so I overruled her. What are we going to do? Vote or something? There's only two of us. We'll end up with a Mexican standoff. I have seniority, so that's the end of the story. Bitter, bitter millennial. We just can't seem to get out of the 1960s. I agree with you and our younger listeners who didn't live through those days might not realize how the more recent events of the late 80s and 90s and beyond are all linked back to those earlier happenings. On January 26th, the following year, Jimmy appeared in court. The court psychiatrist testified that Jimmy's memory was impaired because of the tremendous pressures of hiding from his enemies. Jimmy was deemed incompetent, but Judge Toro, who ruled that he could not be tried on the Cutliff assault charge, instead, Jimmy was sent to Bridgewater for 30 days of observation. <laughs> No question about either of those two things. On June 30th, that same year, a 302 was submitted by FBI Special Agent Joseph Riley. The FBI began surveilling their former top echelon informant, Jimmy Flemmy, earlier that month because Jimmy had gone back to his old friends and his old routines. Note, he was cut from the informant program not because he was running around killing people, but because he jumped bail in the case that Nina just mentioned. Now, who were his old friends? Johnny Mutterano, Frankie Salemi, and Steve Busius, to name a few.
Ed Walsh and his team continued to trail Jimmy Fleming and the boys throughout the summer and fall of 69. On September 25th, the body of John Banno was discovered in an empty parking lot behind 65 Berkeley Street. He'd been stabbed to death. Johnny would later claim Banno as one of his victims, though he never was charged with that murder. I doubt Matarana was going to ring us up and set the record straight. Well, you know. Anyhow, in November of 1969, Ed Walsh reported to the feds that Flemmy stayed put in his apartment during the day, and at approximately 11.30 p.m., he would go to the Pond Cafe in JP, where he'd meet Johnny Matarano. After having a few drinks, the two men would leave and go into Boston. Since Jimmy's driver's license had been revoked, Johnny Matarano always drove. Once in town, they'd go either to the attic lounge, the living room, or the downtown lounge and meet up with Billy Bolero, Jesse Tortorici, Nikki Fem Mia, Sonny Colantino, and a former BPD officer, John Jack Azalai. I want to give a little bit more on Billy Daggett since he'll be reappearing later this season when we cover Stevie's demise. Daggett was living in Dorchester as a teenager when he enlisted in the Marines at the age of 18, but he went AWOL. He and one of his corps mates from Roxbury went on a robbery spree, including a $1,900 payroll heist before renting a room at the Statler Hotel and blowing all of the money. He was shipped off to Concord in 1957 and released in 59, only to get sent up again for five years for stabbing a kid in Dorchester. In May of 61, he was charged and tried for killing Joseph Francione's partner, Frederick LaTorella, while they were both locked up in Walpole. Daggett claimed self-defense, stating that LaTorella attacked him with a bat in the prison yard. And Daggett was acquitted in late 1961 and sent back to Concord to wrap up his bid. From the time of his release the following year, up until his death in 1981, there were no further charges, but he and Stevie Flemmy were partners in the Geneva Cafe in Dorchester. Yep, and she was only 17. Okay, back to the surveillance of Jimmy. On December 16th, Walsh decided it was time to inform the feds that his team was working with the Secret Service and that they might be able to offer more information. Three days later, the Secret Service agent working the case was contacted by the feds. He told them that his original goal in monitoring Flemmy was to get him on a firearms violation, but instead he'd found out that Flemmy was pushing phony money and the Secret Service was trying to build a case against him. As shocking as this may be for our listeners, Fleming had another brawl that same evening, this time in a car on Huntington Ave in Jamaica Plain. Fleming accused J Black Jimmy Abood of being an informant for the task force investigating the counterfeit money. 
Oh, I'm sure. I'm also sure that Jimmy was no stranger to the Secret Service. You remember the American Express Traveler's Check counterfeiting ring that Jimmy inserted himself into? So flemmy of him. Jimmy was indicted on January 8th and entered an innocent plea. Assistant District Attorney Zalkin asked for bail to be set at $100,000. Joe Bolero, Jimmy's attorney, countered with $5,000 bail. They compromised on $25K, which was promptly posted. Jimmy la Jimmy's latest arrest didn't put a damper on his activities. His routine didn't change, and he appeared to still be collecting money for Stevie, including weekly collection trips to joints owned by Louis Venios, an old associate of Frank Smith's. Now, with the knowledge that Jimmy and Stevie Fleming, Johnny Mutterano, and even Joe Barboza were roaming about freely, let's begin with our murder victims. On February 6, 1970, Louis the Fox Taglianetti was gunned down along with his girlfriend outside of her apartment. We won't cover Louis's background here, just the most recent events before his slaying. For more about his early days, listen to La Casa Nostra. In 1968, Louis Taglianetti was charged with the murder of Jackie Nazarian seven years after Jackie was killed. Rudy Schiara was tried in 1963 and cleared, and the late Willie Maffeo was charged, but the authorities were unable to obtain an indictment. Previously, Louis the Fox had been convicted by the feds on income tax evasion charges. That trial brought the wiretapes of the Coinomatic into the public eye. For the first time, the average citizen got a look into Raymond Patriarca's world. Indeed. I agree that it's highly likely, likely that JR killed the fox at Raymond's behest. There were too many headaches to take the risk of Louis getting on the stand and going bad. Five days after the fox was killed, longtime ally of the late Buddy McLean, Tommy Ballou, was gunned down near the Bunker Hill Monument in Charlestown. The 39-year-old longshoreman had been shot three times in the head and once in the shoulder. A marriage license was found in his pocket. His friends said that he was to be married the following week. 
An empty 30 caliber Smith & Wesson pistol was discovered about 50 yards from his body. The neighbors reported hearing what they thought was a car backfiring between 2 and 3 that morning. The news of Tommy's slaying spread like wildfire. The people who knew him told the cops that Tommy had more friends than enemies. Blue's record went back to the 1950s. Another case we've discussed in two other episodes was the murder of Philip Goldstein, a local bookie, in May of 1959. Goldstein was killed just before he was due to testify against Tommy in the attempted robbery case that had been pending since 1958. Goldstein himself had been arrested in the same case because he failed to appear in court. Like so many of the other murders we've covered, no one was ever tried for Ballou's slaying, nor was a clear motive ever uncovered. One rumor was that supposedly Ballou was one of only a few people that knew that Alan Fiddler, AKA Suitcase and Harry Johnson were out in California looking for Barboza in order to kill him. Okay, okay, before we move on, let's cover a few events that happened following Tommy's murder. Now here's the interesting thing about Doyle. He had been arrested for passing stolen money orders that were taken from Logan Airport. He was killed after he posted bail. Two weeks later, two men and two women from East Boston were arrested. Fast forward to September of 1992 and the murder of Susan Taraskowitz, another tragedy. Taraskowitz stumbled upon the credit card and money order theft ring that was being run out of the airport where she worked. The ring was being run out of East Boston, allegedly by the Rosettis. Early next season, we'll have an episode dedicated to Susan and her theories, including at least one other death that we believe might also be linked. Both Doyle and Taraskowitz's murders remain unsolved. Well, that's an episode in itself. Before we wrap up 1970, let's discuss Spike O'Toole's brawl with a former Boston cop named Robert Noonan. Spike shot him in the chest, arm, and face on Dot Ave at about 2.30 in the morning on August 27th. The cop said the fight started over a dog.
1971 saw 99 homicides in the state of Massachusetts, but it appears that only one of them was organized crime related. On February 18, 1971, ex-con Joseph Brazil was found shot in the head on the sidewalk at 61 Monument Street, just blocks away from where Tommy Ballou had been killed one year earlier. Brazil was still alive, but he was pronounced dead on arrival at Massachusetts General. He had a 32 caliber revolver in his pocket, but never got a chance to fire back at his assailants. This was not the first time Brazil had been shot at in this location. He was involved in a shootout 11 years earlier and was arrested on weapons charges since he had been carrying two revolvers and an automatic pistol and 100 rounds of ammo. Geniuses. Brazil was sentenced to 9 to 12 years for the intent to murder and 8 to 10 on the assault charge, both concurrent and in state prison. 18 months later, he was involved in another knife fight, this time with a couple of other men who will be familiar to our longtime listeners, Louis Aquella and George Ash. Ash was the only one who got away unscathed. In September of 53, April made another failed bid for freedom with Joe Flaherty and three other men. They took two prison guards hostage, but they soon surrendered surrounded in the police uh, in the prison underwear shop and surrendered without incident. Sorry about that, guys. Underwear is on my, who has an underwear shop inside the jail? I mean, that got me tongue tied. Oh, it's true. Brazil was found guilty of armed robbery the following November. At the sentencing, the judge stated that he believed that Brazil was the mastermind of the armed robbery crew and gave him 10 to 12 years to be served after he finished an earlier sentence at Walpole. In January next year, Brazil's wife was arraigned on charges stemming from the January 1960 robbery of the Somerset Savings Bank in Somerville. She pleaded guilty two months later and was given a suspended sentence to the Women's Reformatory and three years probation for being an accessory before the fact. She had dyed her husband's hair and put makeup on his face to disguise his appearance. Brazil was finally paroled in December 1970 and was murdered just two months later.
Why he murdered Brazil is unclear. The charges against Sacrimony for the April 1960 Medford job had eventually been dropped, though Rico was later convicted of another robbery that he'd committed in Medford in August of 59. He was released on parole in October 1964, but found himself behind bars again after being shot during the assassination of Buddy McLean the following year. Rico was charged with Brazil's murder, but never brought to trial. Instead, Sacrimony's body was found face down in a marsh in Saugus less than two years later. His feet were bound with wire, and he had been executed with a single bullet in his right temple. His murder was never solved. And do you believe it was suicide? No argument for me. The rumor for decades was that Whitey was responsible for Donald Colleen's death, but Patrick Nee claimed that the killer was actually another member of Colleen's gang, Jimmy Matville. No one was ever charged in Colleen's assassination. There was one more brother, Kenneth. Kenneth's claim to fame was that he had chewed off the nose of Mickey Dwyer, brother-in-law of former BPD commissioner Mickey Roach. Kenneth wrapped it in a napkin and sent it by taxi to the Boston City Hospital. It appears the doctors were able to reattach it. Kenneth later said that he was out jogging in City Point in the summer of 72 when he passed a car with four men in it. They delivered him a message, it's over, you're out of business, no further warnings. Well, you know, these things happen. Meanwhile, loan shark Paul Felino went missing on September 1st. Felino had been borrowing money at a rate of 1% from the Angelos, then lending it out at a 5% interest rate. His body was found in a shallow grave in Boxford the week of Kenneth's retirement. Michael Polici was given Felino's territory by Jerry Angelo after Felino was killed. After Polici was arrested, convicted, and shipped off to the pen in Atlanta, Slim Cazonas took it over, but his profit earning was cut short by his own arrest. We'll get into the loan shark and bookmaking operations in a few episodes. Not to sound like a broken record here, but no one was ever charged in Felino's slaying. Well, don't say that too loud because the authorities might get angry at us, but nobody will listen to us.
Now for the even more tragic part, it was a case of mistaken identity. The two men were bartenders at Mother's in the North End, which was co-owned by Indian Al Nottarangeli. Milano had recently purchased a Mercedes-Benz, albeit a used one, because Indian Al drove one just like it. Milano had a fascination with Nottarangeli right down to growing his hair out to look just like Al. 26 years later, Johnny Monterano copped to the botched assassination in that fucking pedantic manners of his that makes my blood boil. I can just hear it now. Yeah, so I killed him by accident. Uh, Lapiana issued a statement after Maturano confessed, I don't know why I'm alive, but I am. My future was taken away from me, but I got over being bitter about my injury. I'm enjoying life. This never stopped me. The press version of events was that Al Plummer was driving Hugh Sonny Shields and Frank Capizzi when they were hit with a hail of bullets. Eight bullets from a submachine gun hit the car, killing Plummer and injuring Shields and Capizzi. Sonny was shot in the back and taken to Mass General Hospital. Capizzi was hit in the thigh and taken to Winthrop Community Hospital. He was placed under arrest for illegal possession of a firearm that the cops found in the shot-up car. And that's why Capizzi testified that he heard Sicilian even when people spoke English to him. I couldn't resist. Now, the who, what, when, and why. As we mentioned earlier, Jerry and Julo wanted Indian Al dead because he killed Felino, amongst other transgressions. According to the story we know, Howie Winter and Johnny Monterano agreed to take care of Al Frangiulo. The first attempt ended with Milano dead and Lapiana crippled for life. Then one night, while Howie and Johnny were tracking down Indian Al, they spotted Nottarangeli, Plummer, Shields, and Capizzi coming out of the aquarium on Atlantic Ave. When the quartet left the restaurant, Jimmy Sims, Howie, and Johnny tailed them. Johnny later claimed that Whitey was also present at the botched hit in a crash car. There's some question as to how truthful that claim was. There is no doubt that Whitey was a stone-cold killer, but it appears that Johnny and Stevie may have inserted Whitey into their stories when he actually wasn't there.
How many times have we seen similar mistakes like that? I can accept it from an amateur genealogist, but it's irritating to me when journos do it. Anyhow, Whitey's Billy O'Brien had already been killed in mid-January 1967. He was found slumped across the front seat of his car on Route 139 near the Randolph line. The autopsy showed powder burns on his face and six bullet holes on the right side of his head. The window of the driver's side was rolled down and the window on the passenger's side had been shattered by the gunshots, leading the police to believe that it had been a two-man job. One man had stopped Billy and while the, distracting him, the other opened fire. That Billy O'Brien hadn't given up his criminal activity since being released. At the time of his murder, he was out on bail after being arrested with Dickie Joyce for robbing the city's service oil company terminal on Quincy Avenue Braintree. How did DeMaisi and O'Brien come to be in the same car? Supposedly, O'Brien and DeMaisi had le left a meeting with Tommy King, a later victim of Moderano's, at Linda May's restaurant on Morrissey Boulevard in Dorchester to buy guns. The three of them did time together in Walpole. When they left the meet, the duo were heading to deliver a birthday cake for O'Brien's daughter. O'Brien was driving with DeMaisi in the front passenger seat. The hit car pulled beside them and began shooting. Sims was the wheel man. Howie Winter and Maturano were the shooters. O'Brien was dead at the scene. Damasi was hit eight times, but still managed to get out of the car and chase the hitters on foot. You know, I admire such savagery. Nah, I'm just a delicate flower. And no, I'm not going to give you a chance to respond to that. Slap some tape on it and go, baby. And that's what DeMassey did. O'Brien's funeral was held the following week at the Gate of Heaven Church in Southie. He attended and found himself arrested by the BPD's organized crime squad after they found a 38 revolver on him. Ralphie's parole was violated and he was shipped back to Walpole. The irony of that, considering Stevie and company were ultimately responsible for bringing down Jerry and the rest of them in the end. The day after O'Brien's murder, Ted Harrington made a statement. Quote, two underworld factions are obviously involved in a feud, and it's frightening because enforcers and heavy weapons are on both sides, unquote. He continued, I don't expect a war as bloody as the gross conflict in Boston during the 60s. Dozens of people were killed then, but it looks like the start of an all-out gang war. I hope people in the underworld in power will do everything to control the factions, but I don't know how it will go. Harrington's pleas fell on deaf ears because just a few days later, another member of the Notarangeli crew fell victim to Winter Hill. Not in Boston this time, but in Fort Lauderdale where James Leary was in hiding.
Two weeks later, on April 18th, Indian Joe Notarangeli, Indian Al's brother, was killed in Medford. A gunman dressed as a construction worker walked into the pewter pot coffee shop where Joe was eating. He fired two shots into Joe and walked out. There was a getaway car with a driver waiting outside. The press was quick to point out the connections between Larry, the Notarangeli's, Capizzi, and Plummer. Capizzi and Indian Al had been convicted of firebombing a motel in Vermont back in 69. Butcher, construction worker, you know, it's all the same thing. Yeah, you know, all of those things, all lies. <laughs> mm hmm. Oh, I suspect you're correct. By the time Jimmy Spike O'Toole was killed in December of 73, the number of homicides in Boston had surpassed 100. But let's go back a couple of months. On September 25th, just after being released from prison after the altercation with Noonan that we discussed earlier, Spike was shot while getting into his car. Mm-hmm, exactly. Now back to the attempt on Spike. Two masked men armed with revolvers shot Spike in the left wrist, the left hand, the right and left legs. There's only right and left legs in the legs. Pelvis and buttocks. Miraculously, none of O'Toole's vital organs were hit. When the cops went to question him about the attack, Spike gave them the phony name of James Murphy, but otherwise refused to talk. I know it wouldn't be the same car, but the theory does remind me of how Jack Kelly preferred to always have a green car involved in any of those things. The other thing that reminds me of Punchy's hit was the construction worker's outfit, which was the same that the hitter used for the Indian Joe hit. And remember how he claimed that he was the one who shot Punchy outside of the Beaconsfield. Well, it wasn't the rabbis. <laughs> Speaking of 1975, when Mutterano testified at Whitey's 2013 trial, he admitted under cross-examination that he initially told the state police that Fleming had helped him kill O'Toole and that the killing took place in 75. He said he recanted when he discovered, discovered O'Toole was slain in 1973. Notice he didn't say remembered, he said discovered like someone had to tell him, and realized Fleming could not have been involved because he was still in the lamb then. Mutterano said they talked about it so much on the phone, he mistakenly thought that Flemmy had been there.
I don't buy it. I think that trio were the biggest liars of all of these liars. They told the feds what they wanted to hear to make the best deal they could. Let's backtrack to immediately after the plumber hit when Al fled to Oregon with his family. About eight months later, he returned to Boston and reached out to Howie Winter. Al told Howie that he wanted to meet Jerry and Julia to bury the hatchet. Howie reached out to Jerry and the meeting was arranged. Al was told he had to ha make restitution for the damage he'd done. Howie and Johnny picked up Al at the Northgate Shopping Center in Revere. Al was carrying a bag stuffed with $50,000. From there, they drove to the North End for a meeting with Jerry at the Cafe Pompeii on Hanover Street. Jerry was seated in the back of the cafe. All of the tables around him were empty in order to prevent anyone from overhearing his conversations. especially after the wiretap disclosure, but he must have believed that lightning couldn't strike twice. Well. Glutton for punishment. In the meantime, Al reached out to Sal Sperlinga to try and arrange a second meet with Jerry. If you're asking why, we don't know. One version of event is Matarano's. He claimed that he and Sal drove to pick up Al. In Stevie Flemmy's version of events, he said Howie Winter was with Johnny, but Stevie was technically still on the lam when all of this took place and wouldn't surrender himself to the authorities until May 6th. No kidding. The death seat. I'm sorry, but if you're on shaky ground, would you get in the front seat with anyone sitting behind you? Well, the downfall in every Greek tragedy. With Johnny comfortably tucked in the back seat, he shot Al twice in the head. They drove back to Marshall Motors, robbed Al of any valuables he had, wrapped him in a blanket, and put him in the trunk of a stolen car. They drove to the Bunker Hill Housing Projects in Charlestown and abandoned the vehicle. Shortly after, two, two teenagers spotted the popped ignition and took the car for a jury ride with Al still in the trunk. Not long after, they were stopped by the Boston PD. The cops spotted the broken trunk, pried it open, and there was Al.
I like how you put versions. And speaking of liars, next week, Joe Barboza will be the topic of discussion, along with the lying authorities who protected him. We'll be covering him from his testimony after the Deegan trial up until his slaying. So I hope you guys join us. Bye.